1 Timothy chapter 3, if we can open up our Bibles now, and let's turn to God's Word this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at, beginning at verse 14, and we're going to go into chapter 4. Uh, as mentioned, we've been in this series of seven shaping virtues, and we are, we've been looking at seven virtues that as a sovereign grace church, our family of churches, we, we desire these virtues to be present. They, they've been historically distinctives that we've encouraged and desired to be in our lives and in our churches, uh, but we know that these are an overflow of of what the gospel does in us. We are a gospel-centered church. We are a gospel-centered movement. And so we know that these are going to be fruits from the gospel. And we, again, these aren't, uh, you know, we don't model, we're not standards of these, but we know these are virtues that, that come from, of, from fruit of the gospel in our lives. And we want them to be pursued, want them to be cultivated. We know for God's glory, our joy, and the love of others. We considered humility, gratitude, encouragement, servanthood, generosity, and this morning we're going to look at the virtue of godliness. Godliness. Now, when we heard the word godliness, um, I'm not sure for you, but that we, it could just do kind of funny things in our heart when we hear that word godliness. Various thoughts or emotions might arise in your mind or your heart. Um, will we, am I going to you're going to hear a list of rules today of what it means to be godly, um, uh, to-dos, um, a postcard with a bunch of to-dos that you need to, I don't know, maybe, maybe, based on our religious upbringing, that has a lot to do with what that word maybe brings up in our thoughts, to what godliness, what means to be godly. So it, possibly you feel a bit stiff or you're, you're bristling at that or are we thinking, is this something even that is obtainable? Well, my hope today and my, my prayer it has been today is that God would help us, help us grab a, a sense, a more sense of what godliness means. And, and we would experience, we would leave this morning with, a, with God's hopeful, glad call to pursue godliness. It would feel like a, a, a joyful opportunity for us to know and pursue our Savior in godliness. So let's read our text, and then we, we're going to pray to that end. Beginning at verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter, uh, later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars and whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Join me as we we pray for God's Word in our hearts this morning. Lord, thank you for Thank you for this opportunity in this series to, to consider these, these virtues that, that we, we want to mark our life and, and that we know is in a fruit. It is born from the work of the Spirit by the gospel in our life. And, and well, we, we need help. We need your help to understand what this means to, to pursue godliness, to, be, to train in godliness. And, and so I, I ask that you would come by your Spirit, teach us through your Word, by your spirit, and we, we would leave with a better understanding of what that means, and, and Lord, with a heart to, to be devoted and to pursue that uh, by your spirit, because we know that your, your glory is in view and our, our joy. So help us to feel and know and believe that this morning. Amen. Amen. Now, there, there are 15 occurrences of the word godliness in the New Testament. And 13 of them are in Paul's pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and in Titus. And interestingly enough, nine of them are in this very letter of 1 Timothy. So I think it might be helpful for us to consider this letter and maybe what we can learn. Yeah. 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to the young pastor whose name is Timothy, who is pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he's being charged with the responsibility to serve that church, and there is some erroneous teaching going on that he's needing to correct, and he's addressing areas of the church to, to set the church in order. We see earlier in chapter 3, he's, he's talking about what it means to be a pastor and deacons and trying to set things in order so that God's church could be faithful. And in verses 13 and 14, the church is described as a house with a particular design and purpose, and the, this house is God's church, God. God is the Father, this is His family, we are His children, and it's a, it's a living house, it's a, and it's a building, Christ as its, its living, life-giving agent, and this house has a, a purpose, a, a sort of a picture word here that we see, it, it being a pillar and a, and a buttress of truth. A, a buttress is like these supporting beams that would be on the outside of the walls. These, these pillars and support columns are structurally necessary to hold up this building, and God's church is a, to be a pillar of truth, uh, kept by truth, modeling truth, strengthened in truth. And this truth instructs God's people on how to, we see in verse 15, Paul saying, I can't get there, but I'm going to encourage you on how to behave, how to live. Now, we use that word in our homes, right? You get kids, behave, right? A- act in a certain way that your life is shaped, that this home should be and, and uh, what, we, what we're all about. And Paul wants their life to be under and about something. And he uses this word frequently uh, that addresses this behaving and living, which is godliness, how to honor God. Godliness. We are told throughout the letter to flee greed and pride and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love. 6.11, we're to live in contentment, not surrounded and succumb to riches, love of riches with godliness, 
verses, uh, chapter 6, 6. It says, it is for proper for women to profess godliness with good works, 2.10. We are commanded to pray for kings and all who are in high positions and we, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, for this is pleasing to God, 2.2. Widows uh, who have children and grandchildren are to show godliness to their households by serving them and loving them, for this is pleasing in the sight of God, 5.4. So, a lot of opportunities to command and charge and move towards godliness. Paul would write in his other letter in Titus 2 to say that we're to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives awaiting the return of Jesus. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. So, some things we can kind of pull out of this. Godliness is for all believers. Paul has been writing and talking to pastors and to the rich and to women and to widows Godliness is to be pursued, meaning all of life is connected to this. If it's our homes or prayers for our government or with our money, and godliness is pleasing to God. So, how can we kind of come and distill some of this down to what is godliness? Why I've been helped by Jerry Bridges, who's a late author and teacher, uh, and this is a helpful answer. A little bit lengthier, but let's let's us inform where we're going this morning. The New Testament word for godliness in its original meaning conveys the idea of a personal attitude toward God that results in actions that are pleasing to God. So, a personal attitude towards God which results in action. This personal attitude toward God is what we call devotion to God, but it is always devotion in action. And this devotion is the only motivation for Christian behavior that is pleasing to God. This motivation is what separates the godly person from the moral person or the benevolent person or the zealous person. The godly person is moral and benevolent and zealous because of his devotion to God. And his life takes on a dimension that reflects the very stamp of God. Therefore, godliness is devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to him. Devotion to a heart that is devoted that results in action that is pleasing. But it's important. Godliness, notice what Bridges didn't do. He didn't begin with moral character. He didn't begin with don't cuss, don't gamble, don't smoke. Right? It begins with an internal work of our heart. A heart transformed by Jesus and his gospel that then is aimed to love him and know him and seeks a Godward life. And so then all of our doing and all our living is towards him. So it's a heart devoted to God that will then in turn take on his character. We could say this devotion is embedded in what the great commandment is, right? To love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. So our growth in the virtue of godliness begins not with behavioral adjustment, be good, pious people with tacking on a list of to-dos and rules, but it begins with a heart for Him. It must start with a heart for Him, or we'll end up being moralists and legalists, and we'll end up with Jesus' rebuke of the religious of His day, who were on the outside all washed up and looked clean, but in the inside were just dead men's bones. This is not what God is calling us to in godliness. It starts with our heart internally in a relationship with the living God that increases with devotion to him, with in turn will take on his likeness 
the very stamp of God, as Bridges says. So, how, how do we do this? What, how do we pursue godliness? How, how do we know what is pleasing to Him? And what is sort of the end goal? What is the, what is the goal of godliness? So we're going to consider those. Godliness made possible, godliness to be pursued, and the goal of godliness. So let's start with this first point. Paul, after he's describing what the church is, sort of its purpose, how it's to then inform how they are to behave, he makes clear how godliness is possible. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The NIV translation puts it this way. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. What is this great thing, this great mystery which it springs from? This mystery is not like something unknowable that we can't understand. It, it means something that was hidden that now has been revealed. So we are told the mystery that is now revealed about godliness that's made possible is what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. That's what we see in this little, little hymn. It was likely a hymn that they would sing or know in verse 16. Jesus came in the flesh. He was the, he, the incarnation took place. He was a man. He lived among us. He lived a perfect life, and then he died and rose from the dead, and he was vindicated, meaning it was justifying proof that he was the Son of God, and he conquered sin, Satan, and death. His resurrection was witnessed and testified in heaven, and then that message was proclaimed, and the world heard the gospel, and people believed, and then he ascended. He is now in heaven, and we are awaiting his return. This is a little, little synopsis of the glorious gospel. Paul is saying, there is no godliness achievable for us without the gospel, without Christ, without his life, without his death, without his resurrection on our behalf. So if we rewind the story, we were created to reflect God and, and to live Godward lives in perfection, to image him, all his beauty, all his holiness, all his perfection, and yet sin entered creation and brought corruption and brokenness to all of creation, including us. And therefore, we are now born into sin. And therefore, we, we are bent ungodly, not toward God. We, we are anti-God. But this is the glorious good news. And this is where Paul's trying to begin. Jesus died for the ungodly. He tells us in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. He died for the ungodly, but, and God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not all godly, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is paramount. This is glorious good news. Praise the Lord. For Jesus died for the ungodly to bring us to God, and now the ungodly who once lived for self and for idols are now filled with the Spirit, have been given new hearts so that we can know, not know and love God and pursue God and be devoted to God and desire to please God. This is what Paul means when we now we walk worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1.27. This experience in Jesus is what John Stott says is the Christian conversion from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. From self to God. We, we want to live Godward. This is the mystery of godliness, meaning Jesus comes, he is the answer, he is the means, he is the power for us to live godly or godward lives. So by faith in his perfect, 
the perfect one, the godly one, Jesus, His perfection is applied to us by His grace, uh, through faith, and we are what the Bible calls justified. We're made righteous, and therefore we have a right standing with God in relationship with Him because he lived a, Jesus lived a Godward, devoted life in perfection that is accounted to us. Our pursuit of godliness now flows from who He is, what He's done, and who we are in Him. We must, we must get that first and foremost in place, which then, out of that identity, we want our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions to grow more and more like Jesus, what the Bible calls sanctification. We want to honor Him. We want to please Him from our position, not for our a position of acceptance. So unless we begin here, unless we grasp the beauty and the power of the gospel and we allow our pursuit of godliness to come from that, from a love for God in response to what God has done in His love for us, it will just be cold and joyless and religious duty. But when we do understand that, when it does flow from that because of who we are, by His Spirit making us sons and daughters, and out of reverence and love for Him, we want our hearts to be more devoted to follow His commandments and us to conform to His will, it is pleasing to Him. And there is joy. So, Godliness begins with what God has done to make this possible in His Son, Jesus. Godliness is God-centeredness. And God made this Godward life possible in Jesus. And because we are in Christ, we are then to pursue. It is a devotion that is in action, as we heard earlier. We're saved to pursue God. This is our second point. Godliness to be pursued. It makes it not only something we desire, but it makes it something also necessary. So this is what Paul does here in chapter 4, beginning of chapter 4. Paul then, before positively instructing them on the pursuit of godliness, he addresses those who are doing the opposite, those who are pursuing ungodliness, proof of they're their, their not in God. Now remember, Paul is correcting some false teaching, and what we see Paul pointing to in this chapter is this, this weird form of Christian Christian asceticism that has snuck into the church and that people were teaching. That there's, that it was a, a desire to abstain from some certain things that they believed were bad. And in that, they sought, they were seeking some higher spirituality or godliness. But these folks were not devoted to God. They were devoted to something, but they were devoted to the opposite of Christ. Look at verse 1. It says that these, these were liars who were departing from Jesus because they were devoted to lying spirits and teachings of demons. I mean, that, that, I mean imagine someone coming to you and say, you are believing in teachings of demons, and you are teaching teachings of demons. Well, what are they teaching? Well, they were teaching things like celibacy or abstaining from certain food, like, I don't know, vegetarianism, is achieving godliness, some achievement towards God. And this was a serious problem because it was a serious distortion of what God was saying is good and what was really bad. It was doctrines of the devil because they were twisting God's word, demanding a standard that was not truth, and denying things that were permitted from God by God. So they were detaching godliness from the true God and Creator and from Jesus Christ and his gospel, which is the answer, what Paul just said, the true answer to godliness. No truth, no Christ, no godliness. That's the point. That's why Paul would write 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there, there was this uh, in verse 5, in those last days which we are living in, there will be people who will love money and power and, and they will hate good and be abusive and they have an appearance, appearance of godliness, but they deny God's power. He says, avoid such people. So now and then, people will reject true godliness by rejecting God's truth and rejecting Christ. But they will make a form of it by distorting truth. They will say what is right is wrong, and what is wrong is right. And it may appear good, but they truly are not devoted to pleasing Him. So Paul now redirects to what is pleasing to God. What does he say? That God created us to things like food and marriage are to be received with, this is chapter, verse 3, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So, it is what we receive from God by faith, informed by truth, with thanksgiving, and in turn, it is made holy or acceptable to Him. In other words, we use it in reverence to Him to display His glory and His grace, and this is godliness. A heart devoted to Him, receiving and doing and living in a way that is pleasing to Him. And we must have truth to inform that. Genesis 1 tells us God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. So we must look to the Creator to understand what is good. Godliness looks to God the Creator, the source of all things, by which we make sense of all things. In creation, truth, goodness, evil, gender, sexuality, money, and we receive them and we thank Him for them and we joy them in a way that is pleasing and honoring to Him. So, God interprets this for us. That's the point. God interprets how we and what we are to receive and how we are to use it. So we can interpret what that means to enjoy good barbecue or creating music or canoeing or crafting or our words or technology from Him and for Him. It's Godward. It is possible to use food and relationships in a way that is sinful. We know this. If it isn't received as God's gift and used in a way that is worshipful and formed by truth, so made holy by His Word and an offering to Him, in prayer. So, his word, again, has all the say on why and how we use it, for he is the one that spoke the word in the beginning and determined all things. So, this means for the Christian, godliness, if the Lord is the one over all things and in all things, godliness is to be pursued in all things. There isn't a, a church life category and then a regular life category. We, we are to receive and give thanks for all things. But we like to, to narrow that. We, we like to narrow that. We, the, the point of this receiving food and praying and giving thanks, is this isn't just a command to pray for food at, at your dinner. Um, though we should do that, this is more than just praying for a meal. Author G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, he was an English writer and apologist, he wrote this many years ago about this narrow perspective. He said, kind of playfully, you say grace before meals. All right. 
But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. What is he saying? I'm always saying grace. I'm always receiving everything and all things as something from God and wanting to do it for God. Always giving glory, always pursuing a Godward God and godliness in our life. Receiving truth from who he is and what he said, a devotion in a heart for him that seeks to please him. This changes everything as, as we think about Christian godliness. Christian piety is not about certain hair lengths or music style or wearing pants or not. It is about enjoying all the good God has given us in his creation. And rather than narrowing it, this actually heightens and expands our responsibility knowing that all things are connected to a Godward life, everything, everything. And it also heightens our joy, given we can enjoy so much and in life, in this life, in a way that honors and pleases Him. One commentator put it this way, and this was just kind of challenging and convicting to me. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in the negative, but in the positive. We like our nose. We like some some reason. We just like our nose. And God comes and He rather brings us to say, give thanks, say yes in all things, in all of life. So how then do we know what is pleasing? Well, we've been hinting at that so far. Paul says God is the interpreter of that. We see in verse 3, believing, the, and, believing and knowing the truth, the word of God. And then we see in verse 6 that we are to be trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. This, this trained in the words is this word like to nourish, to, to feed. We are to nourish and feed on the word in order to discern and reject that which is false. And by the word, he then tells us that we can be trained, we can train ourselves for godliness. This word trained here is where we get the word gymnasium. In the Greco-Roman world at this time, you know, you had like the Olympics, athletics was a big deal. And they knew what it meant to exercise, to be in shape, to, to labor in order to complete, c- compete in order to win. It takes certain diet. It takes certain physical discipline, knowing what is good and knowing what is harmful. And Paul hammers, again, the things that we must reject that are foolish, these foolish lies. Look what he calls them there. They have nothing to do with irreverent or unholy, ungodly, silly myths. This, This word literally means like old wives' tales, old womanish myths. These are in opposition to God in Jesus. And look what it says. says They were devoted to these. Chapter 1, he says that there's others that were devoted to these myths and these distractions. So what what will help us know what to be devoted to? What will occupy our hearts and thoughts We must believe and know the truth, the words of faith and of good doctrine to live godly lives. So it is to be informed devotion is the point. This shows us the necessity of knowing the scriptures. We we must know our Bibles. We must get God's word in our hearts to meditate on it and to study it so we may know what it looks like to walk and live in godliness. Psalm 119, 11 tells us, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin 
against you. It is defense. It is discernment. It is knowledge of what is good and true. In church, we must fill our minds and our hearts with that because we are breathing the air of cultural lies and myths that are in opposition to what God says. Every day, we are breathing things like, you do you and be true to yourself. The authentic self is what you believe is right for you. Your truth is what is true. Follow it. Be devoted to that. Whatever pleases you, do that. During this American-designated Pride Month, a world is fully rejecting God and embracing lies and suppressing truth. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, Romans tells us. It says they, they rather want to worship the creation rather than the creator. The world is offering us a different diet, uh, not just junk food, but poison for our souls. False things that want us to obey and bow down and believe. Godliness looks to what our Creator says and submits to Jesus' word, even when we don't feel like it. So having the virtue of godliness, living a Godward life, is pleasing to Him and we know that the world around us is not always going to be a favorite in that. We're not going to win a crowd when we choose godliness. At times, we're going to be hated and rejected by the world around us for choosing our Creator's word and truth than our own. We need to be ready for that. And may it not be because of how we stand in truth, meaning our sinful attitude. They reject us and hate us because of our attitudes, but what we believe. And may we be clothed in the virtues that we have been talking about, humility and generosity and gratitude, and maybe we be shaped by his love. And I want to draw attention to this pursuit of godliness. What we, we need is word to pursue godliness. And know what Paul says. He says, put these things before the brothers and sisters. Put this before the brothers and sisters. Our pursuit of godliness is not done in isolation. We, we, we do not do this alone. Community is needed. We each need brothers and sisters in our life to hold up God's truth before us, to remind us of truth, to confess our sins to one another, to correct and adjust and to pray for and to encourage one another in our pursuit of godliness. So we must put this before our brothers and our sisters. This is Paul was commanding. So, as physical exercise is of some value, Paul tells us, Paul says, like a good diet, proper exercise, it does bring health. There is value to that. We should steward our bodies. There's reward and value, but it is not of ultimate value. It is not of utmost value. What is of utmost value? And this is where we'll get to our last point, the goal of godliness. Look at verse again with me. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. But what is this saying that is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance? It is that godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for this present life and the life to come. Meaning, 
there is value in this present life with pursuing godliness and allowing godliness to shape our life. Why? Well, um, for example, godliness, if you have godliness in your life and in your relationships, there is going to be greater joy. If you have an ungodly, if both of you are ungodly spouses, your marriage is going to really stink. If you both are godly, pursuing godliness as spouses, there is going to be the opposite. It will be true. There will be blessing. So there is value in this present life to pursue godliness, and there is also life to come. And this is where Paul, I think, is aiming this necessity and this goal and this urgency to understand that the pursuit of godliness isn't a pursuit of, of just something else, right? Like, godly, here is God, and then we're pursuing godliness over here. Our pursuit of godliness is devotion and pursuit of Him, because He is our end. We are rescued from ungodliness and wrath and saved into God by God so that one day we will be fully known by God and we will fully know God, which is true life. So the pursuit of godliness has eternal implications. It is a serious deal. We are commanded in 1 Peter chapter 1, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy also. And that we are told in Hebrews 12, 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Ungodliness is a rejection of his word and a rejection of pursuing his will, which in turn will provide a loss of our eternal place with him. It was happening right here in this church in Ephesus. They likely thought a little junk food might just slow us down, but they neglected to see that the ungodly diet would actually kill them. That's why we hear urgent warnings from Jesus like cutting off our limbs and gouging out our eyes figuratively to do whatever we need to against ungodly sexual sin because we don't, we don't mess with it because in the turn, hell might be our end, might be possible. So godliness, our pursuit of godliness has eternal implications. So life to come is of great value. This is Paul's perspective, eternal Perspective. He would write later in chapter 6, verse 14, that we're to pursue godliness and by that keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he had that day in view, the life to come in view. And godliness holds a promise of life to come as we continue to trust in Jesus who makes godliness possible. Our devotion is steadfast towards him and we keep our life submitted to and follow his word in order, in order to please him and honor him. This is the urgency. And this is why Paul says in verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Reminding us that we live in light of eternity. We've talked already about temporal things, right? marriage and food and good gifts that God is going to give us and homes and cars and money. And these are, these are not bad, though it'd be helpful to read chapter 6 as Paul digs deeply into what godliness means and warns of how riches plunge us into ruin. But we can receive all of this as from a good God and enjoy them for his glory. But this earthly temporal enjoyment is going somewhere better. We must remember this in our pursuit of godliness. Our hope is fixed on 
the living God. The living God. This is our hope, fixed on the living God, who is our Savior and salvation that is made possible to all people, and all will be saved if they believe on Him. And so as we live in our growing, increasing devotion to God, the Godward life to please Him, one day the end is that we will be fully with Him. There will be no darkness. There will be no ungodliness. Only light and His perfection and His presence and His love unhindered. This is where godliness goes. It goes to knowing and experiencing and enjoying God forever. And this is the, this is the beauty. Is God has given us all things for this to happen. We're not without any tools. We're not without any resources. This is what 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us. Our hope in this is that God did not withhold anything from us, but he gave all of himself to us. Look at what verse 3 says. His divine power has granted to us all things, say all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God has called us to his glory. He's called us to his excellence. He wants us to know and experience and, and, and to know that for eternity. And he has granted, he has gifted us all things we need to pursue and to live in that. All of heaven is for us in this pursuit of godliness. All parts of our life, 24-7. And it's to be pursued by all of us, young and old, new believer and mature. A de- heart devoted to God that lives in a way that seeks to please Him. So just think, a question for us. How, how, is, how is our devotion? Not, not in our, not our Bible reading, but, but a desire, a heart to please Him, to know Him and aim to receive all that He has and give thanks so that we can then live in such a way that pleases Him and we find joy. I encourage you to, to ask that question and Ask the Lord, Lord, where, where is that? I want more of that. Because this is for our joy. This is for God's glory. Just as Paul toils and strives by a hope in the living God, we don't strive and, and, and train in godliness out of condemnation or out of fear, but out of a glad hope. This pursuit of godliness is for glad hope. Our good God is calling us to himself, Godward, to glorify him, and to enjoy him. So godliness means there is opportunity for more life and more joy because it's where he is. Doesn't that make the pursuit of godliness sound much more enjoyable and palatable and something I desire and want? Because like Chesterton said, there are thousands of ways each day we get to be saying grace. And that's glorious. Saying grace in all the gifts He's giving us, receiving gift after gift, blessing after blessing, moment after moment, good things that he gives us that we can receive, we can pray in thanksgiving, and it's out of a heart to be devoted to him so that he could be glorified, he would be pleased, and we would enjoy his love in deeper measures. So let us, let us allow this virtue of godliness to be something we cultivate and encourage in our hearts, for it is for joy. It is for joy, and it is in the end that we get God, and that is a beautiful promise.